We've been focusing on our fall series, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. A lot of people say, you know, is it Saul or is it Paul? Well, Saul was the, the Hebrew name that Paul was born with and given. It, uh, it was a name that he used and was known by most likely until a certain point in his life because as a Roman citizen, he was also entitled to use his Latin name. The Latin version of that name is Paul. And when he decided to pursue the course that God had set for him as an apostle or one sent to the Gentile community, the, the, the non-Jewish community, as his primary point of emphasis, even though he was fully Jewish, he made a commitment to, to reach that, that non-Jewish community specifically. And so he used the designation of Paul because it was something that would have been more culturally appropriate. So, the, the, however, when we talk about his conversion, he still was known as Saul. And I think a lot of us understand that Saul goes from being someone who is the most intensely opposed person to Jesus. I mean, he hated Jesus of Nazareth. He considered people who followed Jesus of Nazareth to be abhorrent, to be people who were, um, you know, better marginalized. I mean, because you got to remember, at the time... When Saul is, you know, these are just a few years removed from really months in, in less than a few years. It's just a, it's not been that long since Jesus was there. Everybody thought, everybody who opposed Jesus, who did not believe that he was Messiah, assumed that when, when he was crucified and died, that that would be the end of the whole movement. And so it was kind of a shocking development, particularly to the, to the leaders in Jerusalem at the time, to see this entire new kind of movement emerge. And all of a sudden you had a group of, a community of people that had previously been the disciples of Jesus, but had shown no real, you know, indication that they were going to have anything resembling a kind of a boldness. All of a sudden, on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension that they were contending had occurred, uh, the, they were completely committed to letting people know about Jesus as being the promised one, Yeshua, Messiah. And so it was, it was almost like out of nowhere springs this community of believers. And one of the things that we know that happens is, you know, you have the, the, the first books of the Bible of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about the life of Christ. And then you have the book of Acts. It's the fifth book. And that book begins the journey of the church. It starts telling us how the church starts to grow, how these first believers grew firstly into a community which was kind of more just like a, a small sect in Judaism. And over time, they begin to bridge into the Gentile world, and it just grows in an expansive, shocking way. And, but initially, they were just known as these followers of this, the Jesus the Nazarene, followers, the, the phrase that was often used, followers of the way. And, and one of the things we also know that happens, and you get to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, is that the early church, which is just, you know, it's made up of flawed people, and they start to have a division, even in the church, between two groups between a, uh, what we would call more uh, the Hebrew believers, Hebrew-speaking believers, Hebrew-enculturated believers, so predominantly those who were local to Jerusalem and Palestine, and then what were the Greek believers in, in Jesus who were you know, coming from other, other regions typically and had been sort of adapted to and adapted in their own lives to Greek culture. And so you had this kind of feeling of, with, even within the early church, kind of tension that started to emerge and to the extent that some of the, the, the Greek believers were complaining that they felt like they were being treated less than their, their Hebrew brother and sisters. And so you had this little tension point. The apostles decided they needed to deal with it. They felt like they were being overwhelmed. 
because it was, the, it was growing and they were trying to keep everybody together. They were trying to administrate the business of the community. At the same time, teach the word, pray, and do all the spiritual responsibilities. And they came to a place where they decided to make a decision. And they said, you know what we need to do? And they felt like God was leading them to do this. We need to, we need to think about appointing a, a small council, a small board. We we're going to call these, these individuals, these men, deacons. And essentially what a deacon was was a servant leader. And they said, what we're going to have is we're going to have these these men who are clearly committed and respected as leaders in the community, we're going to have them focus predominantly on the business component and the feeding of the people and creating you know, some of the logistical issues that are now creating some you know, dissension among us. And we're going to have them focus their energies on that while we can focus more specifically on, on, on prayer, on teaching the word, and on creating a vision for where, where we're supposed to go as a people. So it, it ended up that one of the men that they they asked to step forward in this role was a man named Stephen. And Stephen is this really great figure in the scripture. He, he's, when you first introduced to him, he's described as a man full of the spirit and wisdom. I mean, he's considered, a, he's highly regarded. But one of the things we know about Stephen, though, is his life is about to have a deep impact on Saul. And um, no, nobody knew at that moment what exactly was about to transpire. We're going to look at that in a moment as, as we sort of explore this. But one of the things that occurs is that, you know, Stephen, and we're going to pick up with his story right, right here in the scriptures. But one of the things that we know about before is that once they appointed these deacons, we're told in Acts 6, 7, look at this, we're told that the, the word of God, because of the reorganization essentially that they did, the word of God just really started spreading. And that the number of the disciples, followers of Jesus, the believers that he was Messiah, began to just multiply in Jerusalem itself, even to the extent that a great many of the priests started to actually become obedient to the faith, that is, they started to believe. So you had what looked like initially this kind of like marginal side movement that wasn't gonna go anywhere, and they thought they had finished with the whole thing anyway when Jesus dies. Lo and behold, it's just starting to explode, even to the extent that some of the leaders in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem priests are starting to believe. And of course, that begins to create a tremendous amount of tension. Because there are, there are people like Saul, who is part of the Sanhedrin, who, who have deep anger about what's happening. And instead of it receding, it starts to grow, almost in their mind like a, like a cancer that's malignant. It needs to be removed. But what, what starts to occur is they start to argue a lot. And they contend, as we're going to see in the scriptures, about who Messiah is. And, and men like Stephen are declaring clearly it was Jesus. Now watch what happens. If you want to, turn with me. You can either follow in the handout or I'm going to read here out of Acts 6, verse 8. Look what it says. It says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of the free slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. Now, that synagogue of the free slaves, there was a number of synagogues in Jerusalem at the time, many of which were occupied by people who had come from different parts of the world. In this case, the freedmen were essentially sometimes called the libertines. They were, they were Jews, they were descendants of Jews who had been forcibly relocated by Roman enslaved, but then over time they had been e emancipated or set free, freedmen. And as, as they returned back to Jerusalem from these different regions where they had been, they naturally started to associate with one another because they had cultural similarities. When I read what is about to follow, it describes the regions where they have come from. See the connection to what we talked about last week. It says that one day some, some men from the synagogue of the free slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him, with Stephen. 
And they were Jews from Cyrene. So we're all talking about the early church was an all-Jewish community as well. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. And, and, and none of them, were told, could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Did you notice the, the reference to the region of Cilicia? Why was that something? Because I put up a little map here, what we looked at last week. Cilicia was where Tarsus was. Tarsus was the area where, is the city where Paul was born, Saul was born. We talked about it. It's modern-day Turkey, Syria, right there, Mediterranean. You see where it is in relation to Jerusalem. And this is where he was, he was born and raised. So culturally, up until at least his middle, middle years, it would seem his teen years, he had a real affinity. It's quite possible that Paul was either very familiar with people who were arguing with Stephen or himself was part of that synagogue as, as they were contending with Stephen. That sets the table for what follows. It says that they, they persuaded some men uh, to lie about Stephen. Look at this. Saying, you know, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And it said that they, he's saying things that aren't true about Moses and God. It was a very sacred thing. The, uh, the assertion was that he was trying to corrupt their faith. And this, this roused the people. Now, now, Stephen had been saying some controversial things. He wasn't disregarding the law of Moses, the teachings of his people. He was simply asserting what Jesus had asserted, that that was actually be, being fulfilled before them in Christ, in Jesus. That he was all that was anticipated by the law and the fulfillment of it. That God was not just no longer going to be in a building that was made with human hands, but now he would dwell in the heart of believing men and women who would open their hearts to him in faith. That the presence of God was now accessible in a way that could only be dreamed of by prophets of old. That God was doing an amazing new thing and he was doing it in their midst and that Messiah had come and given his life and risen again. So this is, this is the setting for what takes place, right? And they said, well, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And this roused the people, the elders and the, and the teachers of the religious law. And they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council, the Sanhedrin, which Paul was most, most likely a, one of the younger members in that council. And we know that he was one of the key young leaders in, in, in Jerusalem at the time, that he was already highly regarded. Uh, he was a man of fierce intelligence. He had been trained under the most prominent teacher of their day, a man named Gamaliel. Uh, he, was, he was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, the Pharisees. I mean, he, he was a, a fierce adherent and a zealous man, and he was, he was also extremely anti-Jesus. Not only did he not believe, he was deeply opposed to it, and he resented people like Stephen who were asserting that he was Messiah when he clearly did not believe this crucified Nazarene could ever be anything resembling Messiah. And it says here that the, the lying witnesses said in front of this group, this council, they said, this man, look at it, is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And at this point, everyone in the high council stared. Now, the Bible gives us this unusual detail. It says all of a sudden, in the midst of the accusations that were being made, they were lo they're looking at Stephen. He's been called before him. He's standing there. And there's something about his countenance is becoming a bit luminescent. There's kind of a bit of a, an unsettling glow to him, the Bible describes it as. You almost feel like it goes all the way back to Moses himself when it says that he was in the presence of God and he had to wear a veil because the people were kind of afraid of him because there was something of the glow of God's glory. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is sort of has this gleaming white countenance. There's something there, a very modest expression, but it seems like there was something unsettling and compelling about looking at Stephen in this moment. What Stephen does next, though, they're, they're kind of caught off guard by it. He says, you know what, I like to respond to these accusations. And the entire, most, a vast majority of the seventh chapter of Acts 
is his response to these accusations. And what, and what he does in this, in this response is he set, essentially traces the history of his people all the way to Jesus. And he puts a special emphasis on two men in particular. And it's intentional. He talks about different figures in the Old Testament who God has worked with, but then he spends extra time talking about two men, Moses and Joseph. And Joseph and Moses. And his reason for doing it is that he says, it's implied clearly, they were both deliverers of their people. They were also both rejected. Initially rejected. And then he talks about how the prophets were rejected as well. And he says, in light of these, these deliverers who were rejected, let me tell you, you are rejecting the ultimate deliverer of which they were all anticipating his coming. You have rejected Jesus. And that, that is enough right there. He says, you have a history of rejecting those whom God sends to you. And then that would have made them mad enough. They, were, they, were not, they would not have been happy with that assessment. But what follows, it's scorching. Look what happens next at the end of chapter 7. Again, this is in your handout. It's going to have, um, I have a, it's the ESV version. I'm using the NLT version, which is slightly different, but it carries the same meaning. You'll, you'll hear me read it. I'm going to read, starting with verse mm, 51. So this is what he says. And just kind of envision this moment. Here he is standing before this powerful council of leaders in Jerusalem who are holding him to task for the assertions that they say are, that he's making, he finishes, he tells them about his people, their history of rejecting those who God sends. And then he says this, you, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart. The word is uncircumcised in the, in the original. In other words, which meant a big, that was a, that was a heavy, that was a loaded phrase. You, you might as well be of those who aren't even a part of this. He says, you, you are deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? You know what? That's what your ancestors did. Now he didn't, he didn't even say ours. He says yours. He says that's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Now remember, he's on, tri- he's on trial. I mean, they, they can hurt him. And then he says this. Name, in fact, fact, name one, name one, of the, one, of, one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. You know, they, they even killed... They even killed the ones that predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. Whoa. In fact, you deliberately disobeyed God's law. Even though you received it from the hands of angels, and it says that the leaders were absolutely infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists in rage. And the other version says, they gnashed their teeth. They were so mad. I just think, I can't believe you're saying, I mean, it was, they were angry at him in this moment, and it was intense anger. All I can say is, and I'm not trying to, to create a false image here, I think sometimes when we see certain things being expressed in the Middle East over certain things that happen, you see the rage and the, 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 the kind of the violent reactions the, are, that are come out, it's, it, it's that same level of intensity. And it says that what they did is then, they were interrupted, though, in the middle of their anger as they hear him make the statement, of, which was essentially a stern, stunning indictment that dresses them down and accuses them basically of, of doing what they've always done. You reject the ones God sends to you. But then he says, whoa. I then it says that he, 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 all of a sudden he says, um, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, look at this, gazed, he just kind of lifts up his head, head 
And the, the way it's described here is he starts to look up while they're all responding to his words. And he starts to look at him and he says this. He says that he gazed steadily into heaven. Imagine it. Everybody's in fury. And he just kind of pauses and he looks up and, he, and it says that he sees, he gets this vision. He sees, as he looks up, he sees the heavens open, the, the glory of God. And all of a sudden he sees Jesus standing in this place of honor at the right hand of God. And, and, and he can't help it. He says, look, I, I, see, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of, of God. And now when he says the Son of Man, he uses a phrase. Some of you may recall, Jesus used that phrase, Son of Man, a lot to describe himself. He would say, I, the Son of Man. It was, a, it was also a term that was used in the Old Testament to kind of refer to the, the Messiah, the representative human being. And by the way, it is the only time after the resurrection of Christ that Jesus will be referred to directly this way, right here. It's happening right here. He says, I see the Son of Man in his glory. And it says that as they heard him, it says they, 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 then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and then they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city. And once they got him outside the, the city gates, quite possibly to the very, very place where they executed Jesus, where he, Jesus was executed by the Romans, but certainly outside the city gates, they drug him out there, violently drug, drug him and pushed him and, 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 and then they threw him down and then it says they began to, look at this, it says they began as they were shouting and dragging and they began to stone him with the rocks. And his accusers were told, took off their coats and laid them. And here it is, the first mention. Laid them at the feet of a young leader, a young man named Saul. The coats so that they, were, they could throw the rocks and the freedom of movement and not and Saul's watching all of this. And it says, and they stoned him to death. And as they did, he started to pray. Look at this. And he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And then the Bible says he died. Or as the older version says, he fell asleep. Now, all of this has happened. It was intense. I mean, I think when we look at it, we go, boy, this is like a mob. It's an astonishing account of mob violence. Stephen is ushered out of the city, brought quite possibly, again, to that very spot where people were killed. He is stoned mercilessly to death. I just try to imagine in my mind's eye, almost, it was almost, it's like everyone is yelling. It's chaotic. The blood is flowing as the accusers are throwing. They're rocks of hate. And one man is listening as the victim is praying, words that will haunt him in the coming days and stay with him down the decades until he will give up his life for the one this dying fool now confessed. And that man was Saul. By the way, Saul of Tarsus never threw a rock. He was a little above that. But he was extremely pleased with what was taking place. We're told this in Acts 8.1. It's summarized by this. Saul was one of the witnesses. That is, he signed off on it. And he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He agreed completely, completely with the killing of Stephen. He was complicit in his murder, satisfied with the outcome. Now, these Nazarenes, these blasphemers will learn their place and they will keep their mouth shut 
and they will learn there is consequences to this level of lies. Paul was fiercely opposed and greatly pleased with the outcome. Now, we are going to watch in the coming weeks the stunning, almost unbelievable, shockingly, you know, unanticipated turn of events that occur when the man who is so fiercely opposed to Jesus is radically altered and becomes the person who has probably had more effect for the cause of Christ than any other human being who has ever followed Jesus. It's a stunning reversal. We're going there. But let me just throw a few things out there. In the minutes that we have left, I want to dig a little bit deeper. I just want to put a couple of things up on the board here. First thing, let me suggest, and I want us to notice this. Notice number one, the Christ-likeness of Stephen as evidenced by his courage and his love. I mean, I, th- I think the courage of, his, of this gifted servant leader is, is unquestionable. I mean, he was unashamed of Jesus, deeply committed to his messiahship, willing to die for his faith. He was the first in a long line of martyrs who would give their lives up, people throughout the centuries who have given their lives up. And I'm not talking about giving your life up to do violence. I'm talking about losing everything because of a refusal to deny Christ. I mean, I remember when I was a young believer, I mean, I kind of grew up in church. I did Sunday schools. And, yeah. But there was a point in my life as a teenager where I decided that I would make my own commitment, not because I was raised, but because I wanted to follow him. And I committed myself to Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. And in that moment, we, I remember some of the early Bible studies that we would have there would come up these hypotheticals because it was at a period where there were people, especially in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain and also in China, who were losing everything to live for Jesus and to talk about him. It was commonly understood that you could be imprisoned and you could watch your family taken from you. And we were, would often discuss what would we be willing to do if we were challenged to renounce our faith or told you could no longer speak about Jesus because it was, it was something that was happening and honestly it still is happening there are places where people risk so much for what we take so easily for granted to gather to come to listen to his words it's still not even legal in some places and people put themselves in great places of vulnerability I say that in suffering Because part of me admires Stephen greatly for his courage. But you know what? There's one thing that I found that I even admire even more. Because I get it. He was willing to die. His courage, his tenacity. But the way in which he forgave his accusers and his murderers while he was dying. I mean, for me... Like, I look at that and I go, that is the highest level of, of, of Christ-likeness that I can think of. It was sincere. I mean, you're talking about rarefied spiritual air. I mean, low oxygen way up there, right? I mean, it's intense. I was thinking about the things that I oftentimes find myself getting, I was just going, or, you know, I could get hung up on, I get offended over something, a little thing done to me, and I'm bothered by it. Someone said that. Someone didn't say something. Someone responded in a way. Someone 
gave me a hand gesture while I was driving, you know, something like that, you know? And how angry I can get at that, how, how desirous of to retaliate, or how easy it is for me not to wish someone else to be blessed. And I was thinking, Lord, you know, that, that's, that tendency over, comparatively speaking, such small areas where I'm being asked to have a forgiving heart, and here is a man, while blood is oozing from his body, at the hands of these men, he is, he is forgiving them and praying for them with his closing breaths. You want to talk about the spirit of Christ. What a contrast that is sometimes to our inability to get past small grievances in our personal relationships. We hold on to things, and yet he has loved us freely, deeply. How, how much we can struggle in this area. Maybe we're struggling even now. I was thinking about, do you, know, do you realize that when Stephen prayed, his, those two phrases he prays are actually two of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. They connect perfectly. I mean, look at, the, look at, look at uh, Luke 23, I'll put this up, Luke 23, 46. When Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Think about what Jesus said when he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I commit my spirit. Notice, oh, in Stephen's case, look at this. Very unusual. A direct prayer to Jesus. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And, and by the way, it, it's not a plea for deliverance. I mean, I'm going, okay, wait a second. You just saw Jesus in all his glory. He has power. He's real. My prayer would have been, Lord, deliver me. The, show up. His prayer isn't, Backwards, it's not, it's like he's, he's just looking forward. It's not a prayer of, of, for deliverance, it's, a, it's an affirmation of trust. It's pretty compelling. And then, of course, the second piece of the astonishing plea that must have, and I believe it, it shook Paul. It, it, it shook Saul. I know that it stayed with him. It must have shaken him because it did not make sense. And deep under the surface, you know that it, it, it bothered him. For Stephen shouted with his last breath, the last breath in his being that's recorded, Lord, do not lay this sin on their charge. It was a prayer of forgiveness. And it goes all the way back to Calvary. Think about it. What does Jesus do? Same chapter, that Luke 23, where it says that he prayed in that 34th verse, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. Now, they knew, but they didn't know. And it's, a, it's just an amazing connection of forgiveness that you see Stephen uttering, and you're going, this, this prayer for his murderers was something that, that was just not computable. I mean, Paul, I know as the years go by, will look back on this moment and know something happened there. In fact, later on, it will say, there, there is an indication that when Jesus confronts Saul, that there is something going on inside of his conscience. I think it's deeply connected to this. And let me, let me just submit a principle. Second piece here. That was there, is a rela- there is a relationship between our capacity to, for- to forgive, and I hope I can explain this right, and our vision of Christ. That this is a key principle in life. Look at the, look at the connection. It's, noting, it's worth noting that the astounding prayer of Stephen for his murderers came on the heels of his vision of the exalted Jesus. The reality of God's glory and the victorious love 
of Christ seem to override the sense, how would we say it, of the sense of victimization. And it freed him up in this moment to forgive even the people who were taking his life. It's so intense because what it's illustrating for us is a deep truth. Now look, I'm not saying that we're going to probably experience this. But along the way, we are going to experience things in life, and maybe we already have in some cases, hurts and wounds that have deep, deeply hit us. Um, a lot of our issues have to do with words or accusations or things that were said to us, uh, words spoken to us at key moments. But hear me when I say this. When the Spirit of Jesus is on our lives, when the closer we get to his reality, listen, the closer we get to him, the easier, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but the easier it will be to break out of the wounds of life that would hold us back. The connection between, this is why we contend for, for all of us to keep into the growing life with God, learn who he is, let his spirit and his words begin to envelop our lives and touch us and influence and inform. Let it, let it be a part of who we are because what happens is there's a power. You see the power that he had to forgive in the worst situation was connected to his perception of the reality of Jesus. And the more real Jesus is to us, the more real his forgiveness is to us, the more real his love is to us, the more powerful we will have dynamically a capacity to break out of things that would have otherwise locked us up in, in desires for vengeance, anger, bitterness. A lot of the things that hold us back, there's a power in Christ to change the equation in them. That, and I, the way I describe it is a lot of times he will help us get past the hurts of life and our desire for vengeance. But it's key, it's critical that we learn then to, to welcome him into our hurting places. That the more he's real to us, the more powerful it will affect us. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it will be easier. And there are some strongholds that hold people for their entire lives. But in Christ, as Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. There are some things that God just busts out. And I look at this and I go, wow, the connection, the power, the, the ability to forgive, to let go of our anger and our resentment tends to come easier the closer he is and his love is and his power and his forgiveness is to us. Is the more he's present to us, the more powerful our capacity to break out and be free. See it? Last thing I'll say, not the least important, but the final piece. We should never underestimate our potential impact on others when we choose to model Christ-likeness in our life and welcome God's spirit to help us do that. You know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about the law of influence. I mean, most of us, if you think about it, and I know it's true, most of us, if not all of us, have been affected at some level by some, somebody's example, somebody's spiritual example. Maybe it was a grandmother or a grandfather or a relative or a friend or a coworker or someone when we were in school who was trying to really live out a life that, that sought to honor Jesus. And it could have been, it could have been somebody else. It, it, it could have been, a, I was thinking about it. I think about some of the people that have affected me. The, the Sunday school teachers I've had, youth pastors I've had, people. I think, guess in some ways we're all mosaics. 
We're all kind of built by different pieces. It makes up who we are. We've been influenced in some way by other people, not perfect people, not people who never, you know, didn't have flaws, but people who honestly were authentic. They loved God. They had a real faith, a, a, a life that was somewhat, in its own way, a gift to us. And those people have had an effect on our lives. And, then, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, Lord, I know that's been true in my life, that there are people whose love for Jesus and faithfulness have contributed to my own love for you. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced that Stephen impacted Saul. I know it. That, you could put it this way, that Stephen's ending laid the seeds for Paul's or Saul's new beginning. That the seeds were planted. And when the sunlight hit, and I use that in both ways, when it hit, all that, that was in, that, that was in there, began to burst out in transformation. It was connected, at least in part. Something had happened. Let me tell you this. The, I, I put it, no, how you, nobody knew at the time. Nobody. How could you have known it? Least of all, the angry, self-righteous, very pleased young leader who was happy to be watching the clothes as the rest of them did the dirty work. Nobody knew at that time that the one who would, <laughs> was standing there would ultimately pick up the robe and carry the flag and take up the work that the man who was dying in front of him, whose death he wanted with his blood-soaked robe, he was the one that was going to step in and carry on that work in ways that no one could have envisioned. It's the amazing thing of God when seeds are laid and we don't know where they're going to go, how they're going to show up in people's lives. Some of us are going to have effect on young people, younger people, kids, children, um, maybe older people, maybe co I, I don't know. There'll be generations of people who could be affected by our lives who we don't even know and we'll never meet. Some we will, some we won't, but seeds planted when we commit ourselves to taking on and carrying on the work, letting those who've affected our lives Thanking God for that and then seeking to affect others with our life for God as well. It's an amazing gift. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, I want to ask you, Lord, in these just closing minutes, you know, we're going to close with our, our time of giving and our song, and it's just all really connected, this song is, to what we share. But I want to ask you, Lord, to just keep working in our lives. Um, I'm going to pray that you would, you would give us a vision for not only a heart of gratitude for people who've, who've tried to model Christ in our lives, and we've, we've been impacted by that, Lord, but, but help us also to be a people who are willing to not, again, we're not perfect. We, we, it's not an excuse either. It's not a write-off. That's not something to hide behind. It's just it's an honest assessment, but we want to seek to not be hypocritical. We want to be whole people in you. We don't want to just pick our spots in the word. We want to try to honor a life in obedience that brings you honor and, and with humility of spirit. Pray that mercy and grace would flow out of our lives and affect people. We know, Lord, that a lot of times that can happen when we're log jammed up with, with hurt and unforgiveness, that you want to get us free of things. I just, I just, I thank you, Lord. And I pray blessing. I pray blessing over everyone who's here. I pray blessing in the name of Jesus. I pray this spirit, soul, and body in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.